This week we're going to be uh, starting a series, we're going to be talking about the heart principles. Uh, so let me set that a little bit in context for you uh, about what, what that means. Uh, first off, I, I want to point out to you, you have some of this material is on an insert in your bulletin. It's the one with the very small print uh, because it was a full page and they shrunk it down on here. So uh, you'll need two pairs of reading glasses on top of each other to read this. Or rather, I should just say, I need two pairs. I, I just need to own that. So, um, so in 1995, um, I was appointed to First Methodist Church in Seguin. And uh, this is an, an older picture of it. There's a big tree in that lawn now, but uh, this was the original building. You can see it's a beautiful old building, uh, great architecture, and uh, kind of a cathedral-style church. Uh, and, and I came in there uh, to a church which had been in a, a serious state of conflict for a couple of years before I arrived. And so uh, I arrived to find that uh, we had several uh, warring kind of groups and disagreeing groups within the church with each other. And the church was financially in, in a pretty difficult place. Uh, we, we had about 175000 in back taxes and fines we owed the IRS, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it was, a, it was a, yeah, it was an interesting place to arrive. And, uh, and to put it mildly. So we began working through all that stuff and uh, working to try to resolve some of those issues and pay off some of the bills and and all that, and uh, by the time we came into the fall uh, in this congregation, that's when they would begin setting their budget for the next year. So uh, we worked with the finance committee and SPRC and the trustees to work through that and, and put together a budget, which we then presented uh, to the administrative board for their approval. This was the first time in this church's history that their budget went over a million dollars. Now, in all honesty, it was only a couple thousand dollars more than the previous year, but there's, you know, something about that kind of psychological barrier that, you know, we crossed a million dollars that made uh, a number of folks on the board very uncomfortable. So we had this, more, this board meeting, and there's 50 to 75 people in the room, and they begin to discuss this budget. And uh, uh, there's a, a, a pretty good group of them that are trying to find ways to take money out of this budget to get it under a million dollars. And they're working their way through it line item by line item going through this. And, you know people would say, well, why are we spending money on this when this is what's really important, except somebody else would think something else was really important, and somebody else would think something else was really important, and the discussion went on, and the more they talked about it, the more excited some of them became, and the more uh, rancorous the discussion became, and when we got about three hours into the meeting, I, I turned and I looked over at the board chair, and she looked back at me, and we both kind of were going, uh, this is this is pointless. And so I got up and called it into the meeting, and I said, folks, here's the deal. Uh, we're not going to solve this as a committee of the whole in this ad board. So you either have to trust that your friends on the SPRC and finance and trustees have done a good job of putting this together and that we can do this, or you need to tell them no and let them go back and work some more and bring you something else back. But we're not going to solve this, obviously, in this group tonight. So let's vote about what we want to do, and then we'll go forward from there. And, and they took a vote, and by a very small majority, uh, they did pass that budget that night. Uh, but, you know, after that meeting, there were the parking lot meetings that ensued. Now, you all know that. After every meeting in the church, there's always a parking lot meeting that takes place. And so there were parking lot meetings that were going on out there in the parking lot, and, and some of them were rather animated discussions. You know what I mean? Uh, and, uh, and so the, the woman who was our board chair at that time, and I, we got together and we said, you know, we, we, we've got to do some work on this. Somehow we've got to get this congregation moved past this point of uh, division and distrust and, and, and move them forward. 
Uh, we engaged uh, a process with a uh, called Partners in Ministry that is designed by Dr. Roy Trueblood. Uh, he originally designed it for use in corporate kinds of settings, uh, but being a strong Christian, he took it and he modified it then for use in the church. Uh, and it's about a three-day workshop uh, that we did with them, uh, and we worked our way through that. Uh, it made a huge difference in the life of that congregation and laid a lot of the groundwork that served them very well in a few years when the community had a major flood. Um, and when I came up here years later again, then, then we brought it up here and we've done several sessions of it up here. Uh, part of that is the heart principles uh, that we're going to be speaking about here for the next couple of weeks. Uh, because as we thought about this year going into it and some of the conversations that might take place in this congregation this year, uh, we thought it might be a good idea to remind people of, of what it means to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, so as we come into this, uh, I'm going to ask you to pray with me this morning, and then we're going to launch into this thing. Let's pray. Oh Lord, let your spirit rest upon us and, and open us up to what you would say to us this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, because you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Undergirding these several weeks, we have kind of a, a, an overarching verse, which is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, encouraging maturity among them. He writes, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So we're going to kind of hold that as kind of the ground verse, this encouragement for us to be mature uh, in our faith and in our dealing with one another. When Dr. Trueblood um, launches into this, his kind of introductory material to the weekend for Partners in Ministry, he makes this statement, Leading from the heart means allowing the Holy Spirit to govern our behavior and relationship. As the Apostle Paul affirmed in Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Our task as Christian leaders is to allow that love to flow from our hearts to others in very specific behaviors. And I hope that you're hearing echoed in there a little bit of Jesus teaching that, you know, the first commandment, the great commandment, love the Lord, you know, with, with all you are and all you have. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself, to allow that love to come in and then that love to move out on the horizontal plane to those around you. And uh, you might even hear a little echo of Wesley in there about uh, having your heart so filled with the, the love of God that there's no room for anything else, uh, which is what he called being made perfect in love. Uh, this kind of understanding that this is who we're called to be. And a key piece of that is what True Blood talks about as the heart principles. He says these are the five requests, the five unspoken requests we make of anyone else with whom we want to be in a genuine relationship. Now that doesn't mean that all your relationships are going to be of this depth. But he says anyone with whom you want to be in a genuine relationship, we make these five unspoken requests of each other. Hear and understand me. Even if you disagree, don't make me wrong. Acknowledge the greatness within me. Remember to look for my loving intentions. Tell me the truth with compassion. Uh, and this morning, we're just going to talk about a little bit about hear and understand me, that, that first line of the heart principles. Uh, and Trueblood said that to find someone uh, 
who hears and understands you. This is, this is a rare gift in our world. If we find someone who will listen to us, they become our best friend or we marry them. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, in our, our, our society, you know, listening is kind of a lost art. You know, talking, we do a lot. We do really well with talking. But listening is kind of a lost art, isn't it? Uh, we've lost a lot of training with that. Uh, James reminds us back in Scripture, right? You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Uh, the way my grandmother used to paraphrase this was, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Therefore, you should listen twice as much as you talk. Now, in my family, that was a major challenge. Don't know about yours, but in our family, because we all like to talk. But, but the idea is to, to focus on, on listening, to focus on listening. Uh, and, and in our culture with, you know, all the media and uh, social media and all these kinds of things, it's very easy for us to talk without having to listen. That's why people will say things on Facebook that they would never say to someone's face directly, because they can talk, but there's no listening involved, Right? Uh, and so uh, we're going to talk a little bit this morning about the things that, that get in the way of our listening and the things that in, um, enrich our listening. Um, some of the barriers that uh, True Blood talks about to listening, uh, distractions, are, are one, just you know, basic sound and noise, uh, just, just the noise around us. You know, we live in an increasingly noisy society, but I have also learned as I'm getting older that my ability to distinguish noise sometimes is, is declining. So uh, if you're in a room with a lot of racket, it's harder for me to make your words out and pull them out of that noise. And some of you will identify with me on that and know what I'm talking about. Uh, and so, you know, if you're trying to have a, a real conversation with someone, you need to be in a place where you can actually hear them distinctly instead of just hearing all the surrounding noise. Uh, the other person's appearance can be a barrier or distraction if they're dressed in a different way or something that, that's unfamiliar to you or, or distracts you so that you're focused on their clothing or their hair or whatever instead of on what they're saying. Uh, it can keep you from focusing in on their words. Uh, one of the things I learned with this years ago, I had a, a gentleman in Corpus who was coming to our church and we were working with him and helping him. And uh, he did not bathe on a regular basis. And the, the first time I met him, I noticed that the, the uh, smell uh, was a problem. I, you know, I just wanted to kind of get some distance. And, and later on, I ended up putting him in my little Honda Civic to take him to some appointments and things. And I, I had to learn to work through that and overcome that so that I could be in relationship with him. Uh, personal preferences or biases. Uh, that may not be the time you want to have a conversation or not. It might not be a good place. It might be uh, inconvenient for you. And sometimes you have to be willing to give up your convenience and your bias in order to connect with someone else. Uh, Nonverbal mannerisms can be a, a real distraction. Uh, when I was in Seguin, I had a gentleman in the church that came up to me after the church one day, and he said, do you know that when you're preaching, sometimes you spend time stroking your beard? And I said, well, well not. And he says, well, it drives me crazy. I wish you'd cut it out. <laughs> oh, okay. And now, my first reaction to that was kind of like, okay, really, that's all you got to focus on? And then I thought, well, and obviously, it's kind of a big deal to him, right? I mean, he, he made a point to come up and talk to me about it. And so I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm not aware I'm doing that, but I will try to work on that. So let's have this arrangement. If I look out and, and I see you doing this, I'll know I'm doing it, right? And he says, deal. And he did. And we, that we worked on that over the time I was there so that my nonverbal mannerisms wouldn't keep him from being able to hear what was being shared in the sermon. Speed of speech. Sometimes we either talk too fast or we talk too slow for folks. Uh, if you're talking too fast, they, they just can't follow you. 
when I do the local pastor's uh, school and I work in that school with them, one of the things I teach them about preaching is always talk slower than you think you need to. Because when we get in front of groups for the first time and the adrenaline gets going, we tend to speed up and we talk really fast and people can't follow us and there's no way to go back and look at it on paper because it's a spoken word. So how can you follow it? When you lose the train, you lose the train and you can't catch up. And so I said, slow down. It's going to feel like you're talking too slow. It's going to be fine. Just slow down. But you don't want to slow down too much because, I don't know if you've noticed this, but people who really are slow talkers, and maybe you're not as bad about this as I am, but when they talk really slow, sometimes in between the words, I get distracted. Squirrel! Right? You ever do that? So, so you know, the, you have to kind of learn to focus. You know, either stay with them, stay with them, stay with them, whatever speed they're speaking at, and, and work at that a little bit. Um, accent. And that can either be a foreign accent or it can be, you know, like New Jersey, or it can be something from overseas uh, where it's, it's not familiar to your ear. And I don't know, one of the things I've learned with this is sometimes when I first hear someone speaking in a very different accent, it's hard for me to understand them. But after a day or two, I don't know what happens. My brain learns to hear that. And in a day or two, I, I cease to be aware that they even have an accent. Um, so sometimes if we, if we just persevere in listening and focusing on that, uh, we get past it. But it can throw you off at first. Uh, your interest in the topic. You know, and, and again, you know, someone comes up and they're all excited about something and they're telling you about it. And, and you're kind of going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, I follow several different kinds of, uh, a little bit unusual kinds of things. I, I, I follow, you know, some of the offshore sailboat racing and things for a number of years. And I would tell my wife about it. And I could tell when I was talking to her that what my wife was hearing was blah, 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 Cindy. Blah, 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 Cindy. Blah, 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 right? Because she had no interest in it. But sometimes when people are talking to you, even though, you know, it may not be something... You can tell it's important to them. And so you need to get past your disinterest to be able to engage with them and hear what they're saying. And finally, your emotions can be a distraction, whether they're good or bad. Because when your emotions begin to run strong, there's a physiological effect where they shut down the thinking part of your brain. So whether it's a really strong emotion in a negative way or in a positive way, it can keep you from being able to process what's being said. So all of these things can be distractions, but, but, but here's the deal. The, the biggest distraction of, of all is this very simple one. Trying to formulate a response while the other person is still speaking. You ever done that? They're still talking to you, and in your brain, you're thinking about what you're going to say back. We've, uh, we, we do this, have this happen sometimes in staff meetings, and, uh, and we've become pretty blunt with each other about it. Uh, to the point that sometimes we'll say, you know, if you'll just stop interrupting me and let me finish, then it will be your time to speak. That's a little difficult to do sometimes in other settings. But we can restrain ourselves. Because one of the things I've learned is a lot of times it's not till they get to the end of what they're saying that they get to the meat of what they want you to hear. And so if I'm not listening to everything they tell me, I'm not responding to what they really want to share with me. I'm making a choice to respond to what I'm hearing instead of listening for what they're telling me. So 
sometimes we just need to shut that down and instead of worrying about what we're going to say back just focus on am i getting the message am i hearing and understanding what they want to share with me when we want to enter into those kinds of conversations and have good conversations uh, it's important for us to face that person and make eye contact with them so they know you're engaged with them uh, when my kids were little and they'd be you know doing kid things around everywhere and I really wanted to be sure they heard me, I, I, I'd get them and I, I'd hold their face in my hands and I would say, look at me, this is what I want you to hear. And I would tell them. And, you know, most of the time they did, although sometimes, you know, they had that look on their face that was clearly, you know, oh, that's crazy old man. Uh, but, you know, uh, most of the time they did. And, and the reason I knew it worked really well was several years after that when Forrest was trying to tell me something one time and I wasn't paying attention, he comes up and he takes my face in his hands and he pulls it over and he goes, Dad, Look at me. I need to tell you something. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Well, apparently it was effective, but, you know, face the person. Engage them. Make eye contact with them. Be aware of their body language. A tremendous amount of what we communicate is nonverbal. Tremendous amount. And if you're speaking with someone and they're, you know, got their arms folded over and they're leaning back and all that, they're basically telling you, I don't care what you say and I don't want to hear it. And if they're standing there and they start to get rigid and they start to ball their fists, it's time to end the conversation. Just walk away, right? I mean, the, the nonverbal pieces don't always carry over well, and we need to hear those. Uh, one of the things I've learned, especially uh, with emails and things like that, is that the nonverbal clues don't go across in emails. And, and I've learned when I send people an email and I'm trying to be really clear about something and really concise, uh, I will think, I'll, I'll word it carefully, because I want to be sure that I'm being clear and concise so they know what I'm trying to get across to them. And one of the things I've learned is people will get those and they'll come to me and they say, oh, I, I didn't know you were mad about that. And I'm saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not really mad about it. Well, you sent me this really angry email. Well, no, I was just trying to be clear. But they can't hear my tone of voice. They can't see me. They don't know what I, how I'm presenting this. And apparently the way I put it in the words, and, and I don't know what I'm doing, but apparently the way I do it, it comes across as angry. So I've learned, don't put those things in emails. You know, go talk to them or call them up on the phone where they can hear you. Uh, because it comes across as I'm angry. We, we lose that. So, you know, when you're communicating, if you really want to do it, you, you need to be aware of their body language and you need to be aware of yours and what you're communicating as well. Uh, ask them to share more with you if it's a topic and uh, especially if this is one of those topics that you're not sure you're all that interested in sometimes that's the best thing to do well tell me more about that because when you learn more about it sometimes you find out oh okay that really is interesting uh, but invite them to share themselves with you give them an open door to tell you what they want to tell you uh, check for clarity when you're talking to them uh, don't assume that you know exactly and you caught it all uh, and don't assume that they said it exactly the way they want to uh, sometimes you come to people and you say, okay, let me see if I'm getting this correctly. I hear you saying. Now, that's different from going to them and saying, well, you know, what you're saying is, or you're informing them about what they just told you, but rather, let, let me see if I got this right. I hear you saying this. Uh, and you'll be surprised how often people will say, well, no, that's not really what I meant. Let me try that again. And it helps the two of you be sure that you're actually connecting and getting the same message between the two of you. Be sure that you're agreeing. Okay, yeah, this is, really, this is really what the message is. Look for common ground with people. Make those connections, those places where our lives overlap. That 
connects us in, in humanity because once you kind of connect with people like that, there's a, there's a bridge there that makes it easier to communicate. Uh, we were here for a funeral yesterday afternoon, uh, Will Flam's funeral, and, and one of his uh, extended family members was talking to me about a grandfather that lived in Amarillo, and I said, well, that's funny. I said, you know, my, my wife's family, my wife's dad's family was from Amarillo, and, and oh, really, what was her name? Well, this was, oh, really? Well, it turns out they knew each other. Who knew? But we had this connection because, oh, okay, somewhere way back there before either one of us were around, our grandfathers knew each other back there, Right? Uh, it's interesting that common ground connects us in powerful ways. Uh, be aware of the emotional content of what you're saying, both for the impact it may have on you and the impact it may have on someone else and, and what they're sharing with you. Uh, it, how important is this? Is this something they're angry about or is this something they're, they feel very deeply about? Is this something they're joyful about? That's an important part of the message. And, and so be aware of that and listen for that. And then instead of trying to make changing the person's mind or operating on them or, or whatever, make understanding that person your goal. That's the goal of the conversation. Hear and understand me. Understand who that person is and what they're telling you. This week as I was uh, going through the week doing uh, my morning devotions, uh, J.D. Walt wrote a, a devotion one morning about uh, a piece of scripture, and he talked about the difference between transactional and transcendental a reading of this and understanding of this and I thought it was really interesting because it kind of ties into the way we talk to God and the way we hear from each other he was talking about this passage of scripture if you remain in me and my words remain in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you and so he, he confessed that he struggled with this a little bit and he writes it is tempting to read this text at a transactional level if I do this, then God must do that. If I stay close to God and God's words, then God will have to do whatever I ask of him. I do my part, and God does God's part. Something within our fallen and broken humanity wants to hold a claim on God. We must learn to read this text, and indeed the whole of the word of God, at a transcendent level. At a transactional level, we try and engage the Word of God on our own terms and in order to achieve our agenda, even what we might conceive of as a godly agenda. At a transcendent level, we surrender our lives to God and sign on to God's will and agenda in the world, i.e. on earth as it is in heaven. We exchange our control for an abiding relationship with Jesus. The reality of abiding occurs as God's presence and plan transcends our presence and plans. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. As the word of God remain or, or abide in us, the spirit of God transforms our heart and mind to reflect and refract the heart and mind of Christ. Indeed, the ways and will of God in our lives and in our relationships. We learn to pray the kinds of prayers Jesus prays and that the Father answers. We learn a way of praying that participates in the unfolding will of God as it unfolds. We learn to pray simultaneously with humility and boldness, not presuming the outcome, but confident in God. 
In this way, prayer ceases to be a transactional practice and becomes a transcendental place of laboring with God and the power of the Spirit for God's will to be done. To hear and understand God, not to get what you want from God or to argue with God, but to give yourself over to God, to understand God and to be changed by God's indwelling in you. And in a similar way, to, to give ourselves in conversation with each other and sharing with each other, not, not to change their mind or not to argue with them, but to understand who they are. If our conversations take place at a transactional level, we're always looking to see what we can get out of it. Well, if I listen to you, you have to listen to me. Or if you listen to me, that means you're going to agree with me. Or if I listen to you, that means I have to agree with you. Right? We're trying to get something out of the conversation. But what if we just listen to it in a relational level and we, we open our ears to hear what that person is saying to us so that we can understand who that person is? I've shared with you before about uh, Cindy coming home from work years ago and, and it had a problem at work and, and I kept trying to fix it for her. And finally about the third night she just said, you know, I don't need you to fix it for me. I just want you to listen to me. Yes, ma'am. Right? So, you know, since then, I've kind of had to work with that a little bit, and she'll come in in the evenings, and I'll say, well, hey, babe, how was, how was your day today? And she'll share with me how her day went. Now, my wife works in a law office, and so, you know, she'll start talking to me in this legalese, this kind of gobbledygook language that lawyers sometimes use, right? You know, and she's using all these acronyms and abbreviations and stuff, and frankly, there's a lot of that stuff I have no idea what she's talking about. But that's not really what's important. What, what's important is... I listened to how her day went, and I hear how her day went, and was she frustrated? Did she feel good? Did she get a lot accomplished? Did she feel like she wasted a lot of time? Uh, you know, how, how did that go, and, and how did she feel about it, and, and how, how did it impact her? So that I don't have to understand the technicalities of what she does, but I can understand her. And that's really what's valuable, right? When you find somebody that really listens to you, they become your best friend or you marry them. And I'm hoping to stay married for many more years. So I want to listen and understand her. In John's gospel, there's a great story where Jesus is traveling and he comes to Jacob's well in Samaria. It's the middle of the day, he's hot, he's thirsty. Uh, and there's a woman there, which tells you right away that there might be a problem. Uh, because uh, this woman has come in the middle of the day to fetch water, which usually is the sign that she's kind of an outcast in the community. And, and so he walks up to her and he says, would you get me a drink of water from the well? Draw me a drink of water. And she's immediately aware that he's Jewish and she's Samaritan. They don't speak to each other. He's male and she's a woman. They don't speak to the other. And so she says, how is it that you, a, a, a Jewish man, are speaking to me, a woman of Samaria? And this conversation kind of dances and begins as they are kind of going back and forth as he's trying to talk to her about who he is and she's not really sure she wants to hear that. But at a certain point, he says to her, um, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, oh, that's, that's true. He says, you know, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Somehow or another in that moment, he knows who she is with the insight that, you know, really only God can have. He knows who she is. And the interesting thing is that's kind of a scandalous thing to have said to her, and yet the impact on her is very different. The fact that he knew her, and, and we don't have his body language, we don't have the tone of his voice, but the fact that he knew her 
was so powerful that she went back to the village and she said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And they left their city and they're on their way to him. And the fact that he actually knew who she was and understood who she was was so powerful. I mean, it just validated her, her deeply and moved her deeply. That she went and got people from the city and brought them back. And many Samaritans from that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. I mean, this, this powerful moment wherein she is known. Not trying to get anything out of her, not trying to, to, to make any kind of an argument with her just recognizing who she is. There's something powerful about that. When, when people are willing to hear and understand us, really understand us, they either become our best friends or we marry them. <laughs> and that's who the call, church is called to be. In the unity of the Spirit, we're called to be this body of people that come together in these deep bonds of appreciation and understanding of each other. Hear and understand me. Remembering that Paul's overarching charge to us, right? Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who's above all and through all and in all. Let us pray. Mighty God, we give you thanks that you do indeed hear and understand us far beyond our ability to communicate to you. And we ask that you open our hearts and our spirits and our minds that we might be willing to hear and understand you, to not simply treat you as a way to get something we want, but that our hearts might be open to you and the indwelling of your word in us. And in the same way, Father, open us to our brothers and sisters around us. That instead of treating them as objects to get what we want, we might be open to understanding them as your children and those that you love. We ask that your spirit would come and help us to hear and understand. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.